Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you for it. We thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself in your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself fully in your son, Jesus Christ. And we know, we acknowledge that while your word is is sufficient, our minds can be so confused by sin. It can be so difficult for us to understand something that is so very plain, and it's because of sin. And so we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would not only cleanse us of this sin, not only remove the veil from our eyes to help us understand what this says and what this means, but also what it means for our lives, what implications it might have, what assurance it might give that Christ would be glorified during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our study in John chapter 3. I could say we've been studying this chapter for over two months now, except we had one month last month where uh, we had... uh, couple psalms, uh, uh, good, uh, good Friday, or not Good Friday, but Palm Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday. So we got kind of a little bit sidetracked for about a month there, but we're back in John chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verse 16 today. Um, I don't think that we can cover it comprehensively in one sermon, believe it or not. Uh, so we, this isn't going to be the only sermon in which we touch on this, uh, on this passage, on this verse, but we will be looking at John 3.16 today. One of the questions that we have to wrestle with as Christians is whether or not nature reveals God. Does nature reveal God? I mean, that's a question that philosophers and and theologians have been wrestling with and and debating over ever since Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, and, And it's a question that really we should consider as well, because the issue then becomes whether or not we actually need a Bible, or whether or not we need church, or whether or not we need religion or religiosity. What do we need Uh, Part of that answer requires that we understand whether or not God is revealed in nature. Of course, the atheist would say that nature reveals absolutely nothing about God, that indeed there is no God. Um, He would say there's no evidence in creation for God, which I think is a very dishonest answer, by the way. Uh, To say that there's no evidence is, is just being willfully blind. You might say the, the, the evidence isn't sufficient, but then you have to show, if you're an atheist, you have to show why that uh, isn't sufficient, uh, why what's in nature isn't sufficient, why the arguments for God's existent, uh, existence aren't sufficient. You can't say there is no evidence for God. So there are some who would say, yeah, there, there is no God, so nature reveals nothing about God. But then there are others who would be at the other end, the extreme opposite end of the spectrum, convinced that nature reveals everything that we need to know about God. In fact, it, it reveals everything there is uh, that a person could know about God. Um, some people would argue that everything is God. And other people would would argue that God is in all things. Uh, The Bible warns us against all of these answers. Uh, To deny that there is a God uh, reveals that a person is a fool. Uh, But to affirm that creation is the creator uh, is equally foolish. That's at the opposite end of the spectrum. Both are the product of a darkened and sinful mind. 
Both are the result of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Somewhere between these two opposite extremes, where nature reveals nothing and nature reveals everything, somewhere between those two positions you find the truth. The Bible affirms that there are many things that we can know about God that are made evident in nature. Uh, The Psalms tell us that the heavens testify, and indeed they, they declare what? The glory of God, right? So, so we, we understand from, from the heavens, from beholding the heavens, that God is glorious. At the very least, all of creation then testifies to his existence according to the Psalms. In addition to his glory being revealed uh, in creation, Romans 1 also tells us that there are some things about God that are revealed in nature. His power, his wrath, his divine nature are all evident in nature according to Romans 1. Romans 1, 18 to 20 says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So the problem is not that God isn't revealed in nature. The problem is that sin causes man to suppress the truth in his own unrighteousness. He suppresses what is revealed in nature. So man looks around him, he sees the evidence, which is more than abundant, by the way. He sees it, and he refuses to receive it as, or as, as evidence, as testimony, as proof of anything, or to acknowledge it. We can learn a lot about God's wrath uh, being revealed in nature simply by looking at all the pagan religions in the world. They're all convinced that they have to do something to make themselves acceptable to God. Well, why would you need to make yourself acceptable to God if he didn't have a wrath against where you already are? So every pagan religion in the world acknowledges that God's wrath is is a real thing, whether they mean to or not. They're all convinced that their gods are angry and that their gods require sacrifice. Even the most primitive tribes in the world of people believe this. And while there are, yes, there are many things that are revealed about God uh, in nature, we know that one thing that man does not and indeed cannot learn about God through nature is that God loves the world. That's not revealed in nature. Today, as we continue our study of the gospel according to John, we come to what is undoubtedly, I mean, I mean unquestionably, the most famous verse of the entire Bible, John 3.16. And yet, as the famous expositor and preacher from the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, noted, he said, quote, Perhaps no verse is so frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted as this one, end quote. And I, I would say that there, there are probably a lot of different reasons for that. There are a lot of things that I think people do misunderstand, and I don't want to speculate on why that is too much, but I imagine that part of the reason would be because, you know, we, we just get so hung up on the beginning of the verse, the idea that God loves 
and right, rightfully so. That's something that is worth getting, getting hung up on and preoccupied with uh, because that is a marvelous truth. It's a, a stunning truth. But perhaps, and I mean, I'm just guessing here really, perhaps many get so emotionally drawn into the idea that God, uh, that God loves anyone that they really just don't pay that much careful attention to the words that follow after that. Now, I had mentioned last week that we're at a, a part of the text where we're not exactly sure if this is Jesus speaking or if this is commentary that's being offered by John. I personally um, am in the minority here because I lean toward believing that it's still Jesus speaking. Uh, but, but I do recognize that there's at least a possibility that it's not. But either way, we're talking about the Word of God here. Whether it's Jesus speaking or John giving commentary, it's still the Word of God. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, if, at, the, at the very least, if John is the one who's giving commentary here, it's inspired by the direction of the Holy Spirit here. So this is Spirit-breathed inspiration we're looking at. Uh, so is it less authoritative if John said it than if Jesus said it? No. Not at all. Uh, every word of scripture, if you were to, to have a chart where you know, everything goes up to 100 or down to zero, every word of scripture is at 100 in terms of authority. But here's why I think Jesus most likely said it. In the verses that led up to this point, Jesus has dismantled any prideful notion that Nicodemus had in himself. Any prideful notion he had that he, he was good enough or could do enough, Jesus has been going right at the root of his pride. And he told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You must be born again. And when Nicodemus didn't understand, Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And he proceeded to tell Nicodemus and everybody, if you remember, it changed from the singular you to plural you. He proceeded to tell Nicodemus and everyone who was present that uh, what he was teaching was evident, but that they had all refused to receive. They had all refused to accept Jesus' testimony. And so with that said, Jesus showed them all what their need was. Their need was to stop trusting in themselves. To, to lose confidence in themselves, to lose any and all hope that they were reconciled to God through their own goodness or through their own efforts. And he followed that up, Jesus followed that up by revealing the cure to them. He showed them what the problem is. He showed them how sick they were. He showed them that they were dead because they were counting on their own efforts. And he followed that up by revealing the cure to them. He revealed the gospel to them. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And so now as we look at the verse that follows, John 3.16, listen to how closely it parallels the previous verses. I'll go ahead and read those two verses again, and then we'll read John 3.16. He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is the part to pay attention to. Verse 15, So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So do you see the parallels there as you're looking at your Bibles? Do you see the words that are similar, the same, between those two verses? 
Now, that seems to me to be a pretty strong indication that this is still Jesus speaking, but it is possible, again, that John, upon recalling and recording the words that Jesus spoke, uh, wanted to elaborate on that thought and thus use the same phrase, uh, phrases in the verse that followed. Of course, the, the first parallel phrase is, whoever believes in him. For, for those of you who know any Greek, I know a couple of you know a little bit of Greek, the Greek phrase here is pas ha pistuon. Pas, all of, ha, the, pistuon, believing. All of the believing, which is how you translate it if you want to translate it as literally as possible. So all the believing. Uh, that word believing is in the present active tense in both verses. And the second phrase that's parallel is have eternal life, which is also in the present active tense. Now we should note that this verse starts with the word for. And there's kind of a rule of reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible that when a verse starts with the word for, you look back so that you know what it's there for, right? It connects it to the previous thought. Uh, which we've already seen, which we've already taken a look at. Jesus talking about the serpent, the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And so with all of that in mind, I, I think this is probably Jesus still speaking, but again, either way, it is the very word of God. And no matter who said it, this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And what a marvelous and beautiful thing it is. It is not the wisdom of man. Natural man thinks it's foolishness. He rejects it. He ignores it. He suppresses it. He abhors it. All because it puts him in his rightful place. It puts him in a place where he cannot trust in who he is, in his own goodness, in his own abilities. It puts him in in his place, in his rightful place in relation to God. But this is the wisdom of God unto salvation. The good news is this. It starts with this. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. That's, that's what the good news starts with. It starts with the revelation that God not only loved the world, but that he so loved the world. That word so, it's like putting a magnifying glass right over that word. Right over the word loved. It's, it's the, the, the Bible's way of, of underlining that word. It's the Bible's way of putting flashing neon signs to, to that word. Look at this. Pay attention to this. Can you believe this? God doesn't just love the world. He so loved the world. To say that God loved the world by itself would be a preposterous thing. It would be absolutely astounding. But to say that God so loved the world, this is just mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing. I mean, after all, what has the world done to deserve God's love? Think, think of the demonstration of God's awful wrath in the days of Noah when he flooded the earth, saving only Noah and his family. Think of how the Israelites 
had constantly, over and over and over again, turned their back on God, pursuing these these false demonic idols instead of the God who had delivered them from Egypt. Think think of Paul's summary in Romans chapter 3, which we've, we've gone back to so many times. None is righteous Not even one. None understands. None seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. None does good. There's not even one. Consider all those things. Consider Scripture's testimony of fallen man. What has the world done to deserve to read that God so loved the world. The shocking reality is that man has done everything to earn and to deserve God's wrath. What have we done to warrant any degree of love? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And yet, that's what makes this so astounding to read. For God so loved the world. And what is this world that that God so loved? He's not talking about this this paradise, a, a, a wonderful, unblemished universe. He's not talking about a world in which there's no rebellion against him. He's not even talking about a world in which there's minimal rebellion against him. He's not talking about the world of man and creatures that he once said, back in Genesis chapter 1, was very good. The, the, the song that we sing at Christmas words it perfectly well, I think. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. See, to pine is to be in a constant state of decay. And since sin entered into the world back in Genesis chapter 3, that's what the world has been doing. Not only has the world been physically pining, But in sin and error, it has been decaying morally and spiritually as well. And so we we might expect to read something like this. We might expect to read, God tolerated the world. Or we might be inclined to think, like the pagan primitive religions, that God is so angry at the world. Or even, for God so hated the world. These things would be much more in line with all that Scripture testifies of man's rebellion. If we understand anything about the heinous nature of sin, we should expect to read something along those lines. The last thing in the world that we should expect if we truly understand how utterly sinful and how completely rebellious we are and how offensive our sin is in God's eyes, the last thing in the world we should expect to read is that God not only loved the world, but that he so loved the world. If there's anything more profound, if there's anything more astounding than that, if there's anything, we might even say, uh, more absurdly mind-boggling than God so loving the world, it's to find out what he did because of that love. Our text says, for God so loved the world that he gave. His love drove him to give. I mean, it sounds too good to be true that that he loved the world. 
It's, it sounds too good to be true that he so loved the world. And if that's true, how much more difficult is it to, to fathom, to wrap our minds around the fact that the love that he has for us is a love that would give to the rebel, to the sinner, to the transgressor, to the enemy, to the unworthy, like you and me. What we have to understand, friends, is that if God gave anything to mankind, to the world, other than a full outpouring of his wrath, it's grace. It's entirely grace. It's something we, we did not and could not possibly deserve. It's something that we didn't earn. And thus his giving to us doesn't have anything to do with us. It's not because he saw something in us. It has everything to do with God and his goodness and his sovereignty. One of the great misconceptions that you'll hear people who preach the false gospel of prosperity say is that God looked down and saw that we were worth dying for. And that that's why he gave. Because he saw that we were worth dying for. No. No, that is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. What do the scriptures say? David says, what is man that you would be mindful of him? What the scriptures attest to is the fact that we're not even worth God considering. We're not worth God thinking about or being aware of or paying attention to. We aren't worth his consideration. And if we're not worth his consideration, how can you then say that we're worthy of him shedding his blood for us, that we're worthy of his death? We're not. There is nothing. There, there's not even one millionth of one percent of you or me that is worth giving anything but wrath to or for, much less dying for. What are we worth? We're worth Christ staying on his throne in heaven rather than taking on flesh. We're worthy of receiving judgment. We're worthy of receiving condemnation. We're worthy of spending eternity under God's wrath in hell. That's what we're worthy of. We aren't worth dying for. Because if that were true, if it were true that we were worth dying for, then anything that God gave to us would be merited. It would be something that we deserve. It would be something that God did not out of compassion, but out of obligation. So it wouldn't be given by grace. It's given because there was something in him, not something in you, not something in me, not something in humanity. It's all grace that he gave. It's undeserved. And what is it that he gave? He gave himself. He gave himself. Think of all the amazing gifts that God could have given us. And indeed has given us. He could give us a beautiful garden 
with, with everything in it that we need to survive, everything in it that we need to, to flourish, everything that we need in this garden to be content. He could give us all the stars in the heaven to gaze at. He could give us all the gold in the world to collect. He could give us beautiful things to behold. He could give us sunrises and sunsets. He could give us flowers. He could give us hills and meadows that are rolling for miles. He could give us butterflies. I mean, the list goes on and on. But while all those things would be and are very generous gifts, they'd be acts of grace and kindness for him to give us these things. What good would they do for us? I mean, at the very least, we would lose those things when we die. And there's no doubt that we would covet more eventually. Imagine the man who says it's great to have all the gold in the world, all the silver and all the riches in the world, but I don't have everything. I don't have what God has. And we know, based on Genesis, we know that that is exactly what would happen, don't we? But if you consider all these things, we have to understand that God gave us actually something better than that. Better than all those things combined. He gave us the greatest gift of all. He gave us His only begotten Son who stepped down from His eternal throne in heaven and took on flesh. Fully God. Fully man. He gave us Himself. Now this word begotten has caused quite a bit of controversy and confusion and apostasy in church history. Confusion that, I mean, even continues to this day. Uh, It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Uh, Because the idea of the Son of God being begotten sounds like he was created. I mean, that's the way that, that you and I, if we were just in a normal everyday conversation, that's the way that we would use that term, to refer to giving birth to a son or daughter, for example. The problem with that is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not created. There was not a beginning to his existence. He's the uncreated creator who has existed from eternity. And that's where you get what's called the Arian heresy. That's what uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are. They're Arians. Uh, It's the idea that Jesus was the first being that God created. And the Christian church responded to the Arian controversy, the heresy of Arianism, in the fourth century by writing what came to be known as the Nicene Creed. Now keep in mind that it was written with the intent of refuting the idea that Jesus was created. And it was also refuting some other false ideas about Jesus that were kind of floating around out there. But this is what it says. This is the Nicene Creed. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Period. And that's all it says about the Father. Moves on to the Son. And... In one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us 
And for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. So there's like 10 or 15 times more stuff there about Jesus than there was about the Father. Now it moves on to the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. What is the bulk of this creed devoted to? Defining Jesus. Defining his nature. Most of it focuses on the nature of Christ. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. Of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. And of course, Scripture clearly, and I do mean clearly, uh, attests to all these things. And many of the places where these things are drawn from is the book we're studying, the Gospel according to John. John starts off by, by, by saying some things that you'll almost find word for word uh, in, in the creed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, if you think about this, if you think logically about this, the fact that Jesus Christ created all things must necessarily mean that Jesus Christ himself was not created. He is fully God. He is one with the Father in essence, in substance, and in nature, and yet he took on flesh, becoming fully man. And so when God gave Jesus, we must understand, God gave himself. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, Jesus would say later on in John 15, 13. See, to give oneself, to give oneself entirely is the greatest gift that one can give. You might imagine two people who come in for marriage counseling. And the man says, Honey, I don't know what you want from me. I've given you money. I've given you trips around the world. I've given you clothes. I've given you shelter. I've given you food. I've given you children. I've given you everything that I have to give. And when he finally gets done going down this long list of all the things that he's provided for his wife and children, she softly responds, You've given all of this to us in the family. You've given us everything except yourself. To give oneself is the greatest thing anybody can give to somebody else. And when we consider this, we see that there is not only no greater love that God had in, in sending his only son into the world, but we also see that there is no greater gift 
that he could have given. No greater love, no greater gift. Because what could ever possibly be greater than God himself? He's infinite. His love, infinite, immeasurable, unfathomable. Nothing could be better than this gift. And this gift, the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't given for the high and mighty. He wasn't given for the noble people of the world and them alone. He was given to stand in the place of every low and helpless and humble sinner, rebels, children of wrath, as we all were by nature. As a parent, can you imagine giving your own child to die for people who absolutely hate your guts and your child? Imagine there's somebody who hates your guts and they've wronged you and the punishment for whatever their crime was is death. But instead of giving the offender what they deserve, you give them the gift of your son to stand in their place, to bear the punishment, the wrath that they deserved for their crime. And, and you didn't do it because you didn't love your own child. Let, let's just hypothetically assume that you loved your child more than you could possibly love anything else in the world. It, it's an unparalleled, uncontested love. What kind of father, what kind of parent would do that? We'd say that's ridiculous, right? It's preposterous. But that's the love that God has for you, friends. See, God didn't wait for people to love him enough to send this gift. He didn't wait for people to seek him. He, he didn't wait for people to improve or, or to become moral. He gave his only son while we were still enemies of God. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, writes Paul. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And he didn't do so out of obligation. He didn't do so begrudgingly. Of the father, Isaiah, the prophet says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, to crush his son. And of the son, the author of Hebrews tells us that he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. How can this be? How is that even possible? This gift that God, whom we've only been enemies with, would give to us. What do we have to do to become recipients of this amazing gift? We must believe on him. All the believing will not perish, but will have eternal life. Again, present active tense. So that doesn't mean that there was a time in your life when you said some little prayer to receive Jesus, but your life just went on in your sinful ways. It doesn't mean that you went forward for an altar call and just continued to live like a heathen, looking just like the world, loving the things that the world loves, living the same way that the world lives. It's not something that you look back on and say, did that, 
I'm good. The question is, this is the present active tense. So the question is, do you believe right now? And in five years from now, the question is the same. What do you believe in the moment? Are you believing or was there a time when you believed? It's believing. It's active, ongoing. Is, is, is that your faith? Is your faith active and ongoing and has it produced change in your life? Because that's what, that's what faith does. That's what legitimate biblical faith does. You don't continue living like the world. Your values, your, your heart is different, so your, your values become different. The things that you like, the things that you enjoy, the things that you love, the things that you aspire to, those things all start to change. It's not the same stuff as the world. See, there's a type of belief that won't save you there's a type of faith that will send you to hell. John, uh, or James uh, chapter 2, right? He says, uh, demons also believe, and they shudder. What, what does Jesus say to these people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these amazing things in your name? What does he say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. See, he's talking, that's an intellectual type of faith. It's head knowledge. That's what the demons have. They know that Jesus is Lord, but they don't yield to him. So it's a knowledge that says, yeah, okay, I believe that Jesus is God. So what? It doesn't mean that I can't do things my way. It doesn't mean that I can't live like I'm God. That is not the kind of faith, that's not the kind of believing that Jesus is talking about. The Bible never once gives even an ounce of assurance to the person who has that kind of faith. What it gives is assurance of condemnation, not salvation. See, Nicodemus he, in himself, he had so much assurance, so much confidence but really what he should have been feeling was condemnation because he was trusting in himself. He, see, he had this idea, and just like the other Jews, they had this idea about who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would come to do, but it was entirely wrong. It was mistaken. And what we're seeing here in verses 15 and 16 is Jesus confronting them with the gospel, the real good news. He didn't come to serve their lesser needs, such as giving them earthly power or, or earthly freedom, national autonomy. He didn't come for those reasons. He came so that they might look to him and live, so that they might receive eternal life. He came to reveal also what God is like. And now we're talking about things that aren't explicitly revealed in nature. He showed us that God is, is all-wise. He showed us that God is compassionate. He showed us that God is holy, that he cannot sin, and that he indeed hates all sin. He showed us that God loves. He showed us that God so loved the world. He showed us that God is pleased by certain things and not pleased by other things. So he showed us what God desires. 
Do you understand how desperately we need to have all this information? How desperately we need to know all this stuff? Because if we don't know anything about God, then we don't know anything about ourselves. You can't know yourself if you don't know God. Because you'll think more highly of yourself than you should. But once we learn about God, we, we learn something about ourselves. We, we learn that we are, are not all wise. We learn that we are not holy. We learn that we're actually pleased by things that offend God, and we're offended by things that please God. See, once we, we start to know about God, once we know something about him, we immediately realize that he is altogether different from us. And we learn in light of that truth that we need help. That we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And thus we need a savior. We need a mediator to stand between us and the judge who is sovereign over the entire universe. See, we might gain knowledge of, of God, but the more we learn about God, the more we see that we're incapable to live up to what he has revealed to us what we know. The more we see that we're incapable of doing what he demands. And so thus, not only do we need knowledge about God, but we need somebody to stand between us and God. Somebody to reconcile us to God. We need a savior. And only God can fulfill what he requires. So my question is, do you personally know him that way, as your mediator, as your savior, as the one who reconciles you to God in the here and now. See, the greatest, the greatest problem that people face, I believe, is that we face a type of existence in which the here and now seems like the most important thing in the world. And the future can, can just wait. So, so we put off thinking about the future. What I mean is that none of us knows with any degree of confidence what's going to happen in five days. None of us knows with any degree of confidence what's even going to happen in five hours or five minutes. We can't guarantee what's going to happen in five seconds. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Who knows if tomorrow will even come? Not a single person in the, in the world can guarantee that they will be alive tomorrow to see the sunrise. And so what do most people do? Most people will say, well, you know, I'll just worry about tomorrow when tomorrow comes. I'll, I'll let tomorrow take care of itself. And I'll live for today. I'll live for the here and now. But what the gospel confronts us with, friends, what the gospel says to us is that you must prepare for the future now. Because your life is short. And eternity is very long. Why should we wait until we're older? To think about eternal things and to prepare for eternity. I mean, you hear people say it all the time. You know, hey, uh, uh, church is great. You know, church is cool. It's cool if you want to go to church and everything. And, uh, you know, when I get older and when I settle down and my life's a little bit more stable, you know, I'll think about those things too. No, you won't. 
No, that's not the way it works. You'll be less likely to do it if you put it off than if you were to deal with it today. Because the heart doesn't get softer over time. Especially when we're talking about spiritual matters, your heart gets harder. So that decision becomes more difficult. The problem is that nobody wants to die. And because we don't want to die, we don't think about death. We put it off. We try to to rid our minds of, of the very thought of it. But whether we want to die or not, the fact is, every one of us is going to have our day. Every one of us. Every single day, we get older. Every single day, you get closer to the grave. And I'm not just trying to be dark here. I'm not being dark at all. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm confronting reality. I'm dealing with the facts. See, the gospel tells us some serious stuff. The gospel deals with serious, weighty stuff head on, like this, like death. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, he said, quote, The soft stuff is the talk that does not face the facts and tells you, leave it alone, let's go have a good time. That is the soft stuff because it is not honest. It is not facing facts. End quote. See, friends, that's what we're all inclined to do. So just put it off. Live for today. So life's short. Let's have a good time. Rather than life's short. And eternity's a long, long, long time. See, we all live for something. People live for money. They live for their jobs. They live for fashion. They live for excitement. They live for entertainment. They live for travel. The list goes on and on. People live for all kinds of things. Something to help them pass through their existence with some sense of happiness. But the gospel is an invitation to say those things can wait The gospel is an invitation to believe, to live for what matters the most, not only in the here and now, but for all of eternity. Jesus says, all the believing will not perish, but have eternal life. I think this is one of the places that people get very confused, is with the term eternal life. Because I think we tend to think of eternal life only in terms of duration, only in terms of of how how long it is, only in terms of quantity. But I want to argue that before it is quantity of time, it is quality of life. So you have to understand that eternal life actually has two simultaneous meanings, and these meanings are, are very different and yet are equally true at the same time. See, it is the grace of God that causes a man to realize that we're all here today and gone tomorrow. To think about the fact that there's something bigger and better and something more glorious that lies beyond this mundane life. When Jesus offers his uh, high priestly prayer in John 17, he says this in verse 3, and this is where we get our primary definition of eternal life. He says this, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is not saying that eternal life is first and foremost about duration. It's about finding life in God, in fellowship with God. It's about coming into union with him, communion with him. He's not talking about quantity. 
He's talking about quality. He's talking about a type of life that is characterized by a growing awareness of who God is. And this is what we receive by grace when we believe in Christ. You see, when God's grace begins to to grip a person's heart, when, when when by his grace he starts to work on a person, that person starts to think of those weightier matters things that are more important than the, the here and now. They, they realize that there's more to life than just having fun today. They start to think of God. They start to think of the nature of their relationship to him, they, they, how they, they do not and they cannot measure up. And that, that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's despair in self, and that's a beautiful thing because up until this point, all they could think of was themselves, but now they're thinking beyond themselves. This is a sign of life, a sign of eternal life, a sign of spiritual life. This is the eternal life that Jesus is talking about, thinking beyond the here and now. Because up until this point, their minds were just darkened. They were dead in their sins. They were following the ways of the devil, the ways of the world, and the ways of the flesh, and not knowing, not wanting uh, anything other than or beyond any of those things. But now they're alive. And, and once they start to despair in themselves, they, they start to think of, of things that they'd never thought of before. So suddenly they, they, they seem to strike that person as so wrong. The things that they loved before how did I ever love that? Why did I do that? The things that he put his confidence in before are now revealed to him as sinking sand. He says, I can't believe I've been trusting in this or that all this time. And before you know it, a man starts to hate, to despise his old ways. And he starts to love the things that he once hated, things like praying, things like going to church. Things like reading the Bible, these are signs of life, eternal life. And he continues living in the the physical world, in his physical life, but this is where everlasting life begins, in the physical life. But it goes beyond the physical lifetime. It begins in this lifetime, but it continues after this life unto eternity. Death doesn't extinguish it. Instead, death serves as an entry into a fuller experience of this eternal life that began in the new birth. The gospel is good news, but not for everyone. Because the gospel confronts us with the reality that the life we enter eternity with is the life that we will have for all of eternity. And that is a blessed sacred, cherished reality for some, but it is a terrible reality for many. Because if we do not believe with the type of faith that Jesus demands, if we do not believe, there is only death, destruction, condemnation, The the condemnation, the wrath that we lived our lives under, it continues into eternity. But for those who will believe, the life that began with the new birth continues into eternity. And so thus there's no need to fear or dread physical death. See, 
To have eternal life is first and foremost about quality. It's, it's, it means to be alive. That's what eternal life is. It means to be spiritually alive. It's the opposite of being dead in our sins. We're alive. We're free to turn in disgust from sin and to live with joy knowing that God not only loves us, but that he so loves us. Indeed, that he so loved us that he gave the greatest gift imaginable in his only unique son, his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this quality, this this eternal life extends forward for an everlasting duration. The unfathomably great love of God, friends, is demonstrated and displayed in Jesus. His divine character and his incredible love are seen in him. As the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so that all who, who looked at the serpent would live, so too we must look to Christ, believing in him with an active, present tense, ongoing faith so that we may live. This is the most important question in the world, friends. Is your faith an active, ongoing faith? Are you believing? Not just do you believe, or did you once believe? Are you believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you cast all your hopes and all your confidence for eternity on his person as the one mediator, the one that stands between man and God, trusting in not only his his person, but also in his work, in taking your sin and the wrath that your sin required upon himself and clothing you in his own divine righteousness. Is that you? Today, living with an active, present tense, ongoing faith. My prayer is that it is. May we all live in joy and hope for the future in light of the fact that the time that we have in this life is very short. And not only is it short, but it is uncertain. None of us knows what's going to happen five minutes, five seconds from now. But that eternity is forever. And so let us then live with confident assurance that if we be counted among all the believing then God has so loved us and he has loved us with a love that is unimaginably great. And for that reason, we have received by faith in Christ both a quality and a quantity of life that death itself can't extinguish. I pray that that would be you. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, there is no way to do justice to this verse. There's no way for us to wrap our minds around it, much less expound on it for 50 plus minutes. My prayer, Lord, is that this truth would sink into our hearts, would captivate our hearts and our minds, that you so loved us 
that you gave, that you gave the greatest thing imaginable, yourself. You gave your son to stand in our place, to redeem us, to reconcile us to yourself. What can we, what can we give in response to that? You've given us everything. You've redeemed us. You've ransomed us. You've reconciled us. We ask that you would give us grace to live as children of light. To live as people who are are loved, so loved, by the God of the universe. And that you would give us courage to bring forth this message of the gospel into the darkness of the world. That the world may not only hear about your love, but by your sovereign grace they would experience it. They would know it firsthand. Give us courage, give us wisdom, give us opportunities, Lord, to share this incredible good news for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.